0: Podcasting from Chico, California, tucked in between some of Northern California's best freshwater fisheries. This is the Barbless Podcast, a podcast about NorCal fly fishing, guiding fisheries management and sustainability. If you have ideas or any questions for the show, leave the guys a voice message on the Barbless Podcast Hotline, area code 530-636-2523. Also check out http://podcast.barbless.co, where you can download past episodes and show notes. Be sure to follow them on Instagram at barbless.co and connect with them on Facebook at www.facebook.com slash Here's your hosts, Chad Alderson and Nick Hanna. Fish on.
1: Hey, welcome everybody to another episode of the Barbless Podcast. I'm your host, Nick Hanna, here with Uthrin, son of Utherin, Chad Alderson.
2: Chad, how's it going? Good, good. Have you been fishing lately? Yeah, uh, I did the North Fork for opener above Chester. Nice. And it was like, it remind, reminded me of Apocalypse Now, when there's that, that scene where all the helicopters are going in to that LZ, and it's like sun up, and there's like from left to right, there's probably like 20 Hueys with about 100 guys in each Huey coming in, and it's very similar. There were just so many anglers down there, and it was it was getting beat up. But I imagine scra- I got a few. Nice, nice. Well,
1: we have um awesome guest here today. Um it was funny I, I gave him a call to kind of talk over what we're gonna what we're gonna do in the show and he said that we had met before. We'll tell that story here in a in a second. But um well, Roger Bloom with uh Fish and Wildlife, he's the Inland Fisheries Program Manager. Roger, welcome.
2: Yeah, thanks for having hey, me. Thanks for driving up yeah, to Chico. Th- yeah, thanks for out coming. of Sacramento? Correct. Yeah. yeah. Long drive. Yeah. No, not too bad though. We got him a we got him a surprise in the fridge. Uh oh. I don't want to give away what the surprise is. But <laughs> you'll probably
1: figured it out. How
2: about you
3: Roger, you been uh, you been fishing lately? You know, I, I'm pretty busy with family, kids and work, but I did yeah, scratch yeah. out the department has a bass tournament. Oh cool, um, oh, that we put cool. on at Shasta. Okay. So, we try to beat each other up pretty bad and have the honors of how many fish, you know, who has the biggest stringer kind of thing, the biggest weight. So, I did that a couple weeks ago. How was wow.
1: how was the fishing?
3: Oh, it's great. Those spotted yeah. bass are easy.
1: And, you know, yeah. Not
3: huge fish, but. Um, yeah. And then I've been trying to get out on, the, you know, the American, I live right on the river. And oh, so okay. the shad are, are. The
1: shad are running. Yep, yeah. They've been running for a while.
3: Yeah. Just, uh, I need to get the boat out, but it's just time stuff. So, but.
1: Do you get on? And so is that your main fishery? Kind of hitting the, the American? And yeah,
3: yeah. I I've, I I kind of grew up on the banks there. Oh, Fishing, cool. fishing steelhead, so I'm a steelhead junkie. Um, love it. And so, yeah, I tried to get out there during that time. But also, I mean, like right now for striped bass and chat is another thing that I love doing. So nice.
1: Cool. Well, tell us a little bit about yourself. Tell us, um, you know, how you got into the the fisheries uh, world and um, yeah, just. Where you're, where you're from and what got you into fishing
3: sure yeah i mean it, kind of going back to the american um grew up there chasing fish uh went to high school in sacramento and knew that uh i wanted to do something in regards to fishing yeah so i talked to my teachers there and believe it or not uh bill keeney i knew him before we even started his shop oh cool and and uh between he and my teachers are like, don't become a fishing guide. <laughs> and I don't know if that's because of my, my lack of fishing prowess at the time or they're like, you're, you're a science geek, man. So why don't you just go that route? And so I asked them where, you know, how do I do that? What should I do? And they said, yeah, you need to, you know, go to college to get a degree. That's your only chance at that. So, right. and they pointed me towards Humboldt. So I eventually Perfect. went to Humboldt, studied nice. wildlife and fisheries there. And
1: Is that where your uh, passion for steelhead started?
3: It started on the American gut, but got refined in Humboldt, yeah, yeah on yeah, the was, on the MAD, for sure. Um, cool. So, yeah, and then just springboarded from from college uh, into working for the department uh, on the wild trout program at the time. So, is that
1: 90s, kind of mid-90s when yeah, you started?
3: early 90s, yeah, yeah.
1: So oh, nice. Yeah. So, you saw a lot of cool stuff from all that water that we received in California in the, the later 90s and— through this late drought that we just experienced. So you've, you've seen, a, seen a lot, a lot of up and downs.
3: Yeah. I've seen a lot of changes. Um, I was lucky enough to be single at the time and be in the field, but <laughs> 280 days of fishing, oh, you know, uh, doing work across the state on the wild trout and then fish after work. So I was that super blessed amazing. and lucky to be able to, you know, have that experience and, figure out where fish are from snorkeling and electric fishing, yeah. all those little techniques yeah. we use. So. Well, that's
1: how we, we met. So just to go back on that story, we um, as I called you, you were like, hey, I think we met before on the banks of the Yuba. And I was like, huh? <laughs> and uh, that year, you, we thought it was 2012, I decided to put in with a buddy of mine, put in at Inglebright Dam, drop the boat down the pg road and get in on those headwaters and float it, just thinking there would be good fishing up there. If, if you're listening, this isn't a good idea. You'll see <laughs> really why. Bad idea. The fishing wasn't that great, but uh, we get down to what's called the Narrows, and um, I had to get out and scout this rapid because it, it was a lot bigger than what I thought it was going to be. And um, as I'm doing this, you came running down the banks to go, hey, you guys, <laughs> you guys done this before? I was like, yeah, yeah, I've done it. And <laughs> so I, I need to look at it a little bit. And you're like, oh, I'm going to go down and get a picture for you. So <laughs> back yeah, in the- Just to have something your mom can remind you, rem- remember you by. <laughs> by. Yeah, exactly. And uh, I, I made the mistake of not going to that last rapid, I didn't go get a good look at it. And uh, when we came down into it, boat spun me and came in backwards. And as you saw, um completely flipped us right I mean
2: yeah you got- so manny do you have the can you put the video up or the the photo up that's on the screen
1: so, so what was it like when you <laughs> from the rocks that you saw when well you're you looking
3: com- you were looking good at this point <laughs> <Right>. <laughs>
2: he's going backwards down into a bucket and he's looking good that's yeah I was
1: hoping nice. that you're gonna have a picture of Frank flying out of the front of the boat and
2: i
3: I, I got the whole sequence but you guys were so far away from me at that point. And that's, it was difficult to get to that spot. If you know about the narrows, I had to do a bunch of rock scrambling just to get to the point to take that picture.
2: Right. Um, And it's probably hard laughing the whole time.
3: I, you know, I didn't, I just, kept the the camera on, just clicking away. Cause I w- I had a feeling. And then when you guys hit that one little, um, oh that reverse toilet hydro- bowl. yeah, it reverse dr- hydraulic, you guys flipped. And I was worried about the lean bar cause it's a welded lean bar. I'm like, Oh, I hope they don't get pinned. Right. And,
1: uh, I, it was like, I was like in a washing machine. I was in with my P I had a PDF and my waders on and I was down there for a while. My shoulder was dislocated and I was being spun around in the water when i popped up i popped my shoulder back into place i saw an oar I, I grabbed the oar and i grabbed the boat and i get myself into position on the boat upside down you know and uh, i didn't see frank and <laughs> when i all of a sudden he pops up on the front of the boat and his eyes were just <laughs> huge just massive i'm like are you okay he's like yeah he's like are you okay I'm like yeah he's like all right we got a kick to the shore and after you know i don't know 50 yards of rapids we had to kick with wader boots on all the way to the shore and then flip a heavy, you know, weighted boat back over. And I think they came scrambling down at that point, making sure we were all
3: right. Yeah. You guys, uh, you guys were in shock for sure oh, by man. the time I got to you. Yeah. Yeah. Was, There's
2: there was a picture of it on Nick's, uh, Instagram yeah. nor fly guy. So go check it out. <laughs> We've got it up on the video. If you guys are watching the YouTube video, you'll see it. Um, yeah, I'll never forget that day because it was, it was my birthday,
1: and
3: then your your birthday's the same day. That's amazing. What's up? <laughs> and we didn't know that till just you know just today. Now. So that's, that's pretty. That's crazy. Pretty funny. Yeah. Yeah,
1: I won't be doing that that one again. No, yeah, I don't, I don't it think looks ever. And you lost all your gear, right? Well, we snapped a fly rod. Um, I think we so you're, we're holding f- four. We have four fly rods there. I think we ended up with three, but one of them is broken. So,
2: um, yeah, we lost the beer, but we're, we, we're alive to tell today. That's what,
1: I guess that's what, matters. you know what
2: the irony is, um, when you were on the Yuba with me, um, we didn't go through any rapids and you lost two rods. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. <laughs> from, from Both because I did something, you know, I like <laughs> fell on one and then one guy caught in the trees and you know, <laughs> whatever.
1: That was pretty cool. We just did. A, we took the jet boat up there and um, super skinny water, but the sturgeon were all over. Oh, all over. just blowing cool. the gear. Yeah, they yeah. were
2: just like in two, three, four feet of water sunning, and we went over probably twelve or fifteen of them. Yeah. That oh was yeah. Really cool. So really
3: cool uh, just scene. just as a factoid, and and I'll hopefully you guys don't mind as I drop these things as we're talking, nah, but we're, you guys hopefully. So we have science going on on the U but that was why I was out that day uh, with my colleague but we're continuing to monitor that fishery and we just got a detection on a green sturgeon one of the smaller ones that was from the Columbia River. Whoa!
1: Whoa. And your cool
3: ran all the way up to Holy to, to So that's kind of cool. That you know, that, super cool that they go all over the place. So and, they're anadromous yeah. then. Yeah, I did yeah. not know that.
2: Okay, I thought they were just freshwater, but yeah. they can. They're like devolve. one of the
1: oldest anadromous next to that. That's pretty the lampreys. Yeah, cool. right
2: and up. highly migratory yeah. then too. Yeah, I mean we're or still candy.
3: learning a lot about those what fish, a trip. but uh, we we knew that's a hot spot right there at Tegar, and we get a lot of those yeah. fish milling in the spill basin up at the top. But we we never we never thought that. We'd see a Columbia green sturgeon.
2: Up there, we so. we saw like five, six, seven foot beasts out there, like oh, big yeah. big fish. And how long does it take in years? What's the growth? You know, for life history, what's it take to get like six feet long? Six
3: feet. Know? And this is just this is going to be a, a, a wag, but um, I'm going to say a six footers probably right there at
2: fifteen, twenty. Years. I was going to say 20 over years. twenty, probably. Yeah. So know? then, how about a white sturgeon on say the the Sacramento?
3: Well, that's what I was, thinking, yeah, but, that would okay. be a white. The greens okay. don't get that big, but a okay. white that big would be probably that age. And then some of the large ones down lower, you know, you're talking 30, 40, 50 years so, old. H-
1: how did you know it was a Columbia fish?
3: Um, so we have, great question. Uh, we have an, uh, a pit tag array mm-hmm. that goes across lower down just above Simpson Lane, if you know where that yep. spot is. Yep. Um, so we have that antenna that goes all the way along the bottom of the river and they had pit tagged that ah. sturgeon in the
2: Columbia. Gotcha. So, so I don't, I don't follow. Is there a device on the on the fish then? Yeah, there's a okay. little
3: tiny. It's the same stuff that they put in
2: cattle, or you would put okay. in your dog to chip your dog. It's like a transponder. Then exactly, and, when, and a, then when it goes over that tag, yep, it gets it li- the signal it gets lit and lit. The light, passive, lights it up. The passive. Yeah, it's right. a
3: passive integrated transponder. So yep. that's why it's a pit. Okay. You know, pit tag. Yeah.
2: Okay. Cool. <laughs> that's that's pretty sweet.
3: Did,
1: so do you, are other fished. Um, monitored like that, like the salmon and the steelhead and are they, yeah.
3: Yeah. Yeah. So we're doing that and there's a, a, a bunch of different agencies and folks that are monitoring using that type of technology along with the, the other acoustic tags and radio tags. But the, on the Yuba, there's a pit tag reader. I think if it's not already there, it's going to be established at the gear at those ladders. Okay. So it'll be another, cause it's an easy spot to put an antenna cause it's kind uh, of a, a hard structure and a choke point. Yeah. So what
1: what area were you focusing on when you, you're out of college, you come into this the fish and wildlife? Where, where did you start and how did you end up where you're at now?
3: You know, I had heard about the wild trout program and I was a trout junkie at the time mm-hmm. and I, I wanted to get as close as I could to finding a way to fish and uh, it seemed like that program <laughs> kind of aligned in that way and I was really interested in the management aspect of wild trout. So I just hounded um at that point, my boss and uh, said, well, I can only pay you for two months. I said, good, I'm done. I'm, 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 I'll take it. So from there, I just you know stuck with that. I, I did that probably for about seven or eight years and then went down to Southern California as the wild trout biologist for Southern California. So okay. I was down there uh, managing those fisheries for two or three years. And nice. then I came back to SAC and did a bunch of other things too.
1: Okay, cool. Yeah. So you were a big part of that heritage and trout fishing challenge right?
3: yeah, yeah so nine, 98 we established the heritage heritage trout program. Uh-huh. the commission did that
1: and what it, so what is that?
3: That's kind of a a, a a recognition program to highlight our native trout in California
1: the golden, the red Band and then the McLeod yeah, there's is like a,
3: eleven. Um, mm-hmm. Those are all, and there's suites like the Red Band suite, the Golden Trout Complex down south, and mm-hmm. we have some three cutthroats. So that was a program with no funding that they initiated to highlight because most anglers, you know, weren't aware of how many that we had, the diversity of native trout that we have, which is, I would say, on par with any other state in the nation. Mm-hmm so they instituted that thing and that was our goal was to highlight so i'd go to the ISE and i talk to anglers and we'd show them the poster and they go well i caught a golden and or i want to catch a golden and i don't know what that is and i so i right about that time wyoming instituted the cut slam and so i reached out to ron remick in wyoming and said hey you know how's this thing working he goes oh it's great and so I talked my, uh, at that point, my wife into flying out and doing the cut slam and meeting with those guys and trying to do a program like that in California. So I took a bunch of stuff from them and came up and, and vetted it through a bunch of the folks in the department to come up with the number six, because we got 11 and that's too many, right? That'd be really hard, although people do it. So we worked through that and then finally got that program off the ground. So we got you know a certificate and an acknowledgement. What um, year so, was that? Yeah, uh, I want to say we probably instituted that in 2004. Yeah. Somewhere around there. Oh. The commission finally adopted that. I started to do the research and get everything in place. Nothing happens quickly in state you know, sure. bureaucracy. Mm-hmm. But I want to say I started that in 2000, mm-hmm. flew out to Wyoming, did all that stuff. And then uh, it took about two, three years.
1: I didn't even, I mean, I didn't know about it until, you know, thanks to Cast Hope and what they do with those mm-hmm. kids and getting them involved. But, um, I, you know, they were the ones that kind of introduced me to the whole thing. I, I had no idea.
3: Yeah. And that's, I mean, they're a great advocate. In fact, I ran into those guys in the upper Truckee one day and Ryan had the boys out. And, oh, I, really? I admit, and so I gave him an impromptu a little uh, clinic on the history of that oh, cool cutthroat oh, so restoration. Cool. Yeah, so Ryan was like, "You guys don't understand what's going on. This is really cool." <laughs> so he's been really great in taking those those kids out, and that that's been a great platform, you know, to to advocate that native trout stuff. So well, cool.
1: Talk about um, you're you're bringing up a, just something more specific, and that's the genetics of these fish. Mm -hmm. Um, And I I think that's a a big issue that a lot of people think about with the hatchery programs and the wild trout that you're talking about. And, um, you know, I feel back in the sixties and seventies, they were just like, Hey, let's take an eel river steelhead and and throw it in the feather. Or let's, you know, there was a lot of kind of crazy things going on and it just like, almost like a big laboratory that they were just doing all these different. So I don't know. Talk, does that fit into the, the fisheries genetics?
3: Piece yeah. That you're doing? Yeah, and you kind of gave a good overview of the the complexity of trying to unravel what has happened in our state in right. relation to moving fish around and right. how they they intergress with one another if they did, and so it's kind of hard to 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 figure out that mystery uh, because we have stocking records, but it doesn't get at everything. Mm-hmm. So when you're trying to move forward on figuring that out, along with trying to recover, protect, and conserve these fisheries genetics really come into play it's a a big deal and we were spending a lot of money we were contracting out and you know the whole time we were just feeling like we were hobbyists as geneticists we did you know (laughs) we just read this you know just give us the results and then we'll try to figure this out as fisheries managers the best thing to do and really in the back of our mind we're like we need our own geneticist we need our own shop that would be so much you know more efficient for us to do and we'd have somebody that could actually articulate that and work with our hatchery staff to make sure that we're not making any more mistakes or moving fish uh, or uh, interbreeding fish unnecessarily or even, you know, within the same species too, you know, and right. doing the right type of broodstock development. So we tried – it probably took us 12 years to actually get the money, the position, and everything to get our own fisheries, geneticist and the lab set up. And we just got that. So Wow.
2: So that's, that's, cr- that's great. pretty exciting. Congratulations. That might be a cool person to have on the show. Talk to yeah you know, yeah yeah.
3: There's it. no shortage of material with this one because we do. <laughs> now, I mean, now we're inundated and we're having to uh, like balance what we can do from you know Eagle Lake e- Eagle to the Lake, Golden Trout. I was going to say Eagle Lake. Oh yeah. man, there's no shortage of questions. We and, just
1: had Val on, and 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 I didn't know that, but she was talking about how you know a lot of these fish were <laughs> kind of looking alike, and and it just. I, I didn't even think about Eagle Lake being that a part of that, but more of the hatchery, the salmon, right, and the steelhead that mm-hmm. are obviously a big part of the hatchery program. Um, but pretty cool that that there's you know a hatchery up there doing that and cycling through all the genetics and um, figuring it out. It's it's
2: it's can, neat. It's neat to can, can we maybe focus on one particular study or area of focus just so we I because I'm having a hard time making a connection in my head around you know, a specific location, say like Eagle Lake and then the genetic piece of that, like what, what the goals are for management? How is it, you know, basically the practical application of genetics within that fishery, I guess is what I'm asking. Or, and then yeah, the steps just how do you apply to, it to yeah. other fisheries? That one actually
3: is kind of unique because it's limited to just, you know, historically just to that lake and that mm-hmm. watershed. And so we've been functionally supporting that fishery with um, our hatchery operations. So that one is unique, and and we could apply that same technology to other, uh, like our our uh, cutthroat, the
1: pilot point, or uh, pilot peak.
3: That's that's the that's Nevada right, or Fish right. and Wildlife Service. But we have our own independent strain cutthroat okay. that we have a broodstock for, and then we're looking potentially at a Walker strain cutthroat. So I'm super excited about that. And, and learning lessons from what we do at Eagle Lake and using the right genetics and the right breeding matrices is what we call it. So you're not crossing brother and sister, you know, because that's not good. Yeah. Um, so, you know, learning from our experiences, using the genetics to track families is, is what we're, we're hoping to do through that process. And then expanding out potentially for our cutthroat populations where it's not just limited that's a pretty, pretty big range as opposed to eagle lake um, which is almost exclusively supported by our hatchery because pine creek is loaded mm-hmm. with brook trout which is another project altogether but
1: um, as an invasive species
3: yeah so our our long-term goal is to deal with that and then allow for those eagle lakes to repopulate pine creek and and uh, reproduce on their own that's that's that I want to see that's a legacy project for me and for the department. And we're making huge strides moving forward on, on trying to make that happen. So
2: Val Val was saying the water into Eagle Lake was kind of an issue in terms of the flow regimen. Did I say that right? Regime regimen. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, it, I know. I mean, there's going to be a dependency on on that as well. Yeah, to have consistent flows in there and habitat up there for spawn and all that.
3: Yeah, and and, and that's cool that you guys had had her on. She's she's got she's a wealth of knowledge when it comes to Eagle yeah. Lake and and she's spot on. Pine Creek in, in most years uh, doesn't connect year round. In fact, it dries right. up in a right. considerable portion of that lower section, but it does retain water. That's why the brook trout are there, way higher up. So I think historically, Eagles always suffered through boom and bust. Mm -hmm. That's why there's not Lahontan cutthroat there. Is because they probably blinked out. There's a bunch of Mm. other Lahontan fish there, like Tui chub, which that's what makes the eagles Uh, get big, and probably pied sculpin because they made through a probably significant drought episode, okay, and then got invaded by um, likely a a rainbow from either the pit or the feather drainage. You're talking
1: about thousands of years, yeah, way
3: back. Mm. So it's 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 one of those systems that's likely you know gotten really low before, Um, Mm. but if as long as you have a, a refuge, if we can get the eagle. Uh, uh eagle lake rainbows back up into the headwaters mm-hmm. um and likely that hopefully won't go dry you've always got that repository of fish up there that can come back and and populate when the, the flows are when the flows make are make it possible basically. exactly and the lake okay. levels go back up when I the lake it. levels drop down it gets pretty tough to as yeah. a, for a for a trout yeah
1: so uh, are those fish uh, do you know about how they're stocked in other parts of the state
3: Eagle Lake. Oh, we we, we utilize them. They're a great fish for uh, alkaline lakes. Mm-hmm. So they, they are a good one for like Crowley mm-hmm. um, and some of those where they can actually, uh, you know, uh, perform better mm-hmm. because they're used to that high alkalinity at, at Eagle. They've evolved that way. Um, so they really do well there. I'm not sure how they perform in other waters like, you know, something on the West Slope that's holly granitic and it's not alkaline i'm not i'm not sure how they would perform but they do well in those other kind of desert type lakes right Mm. yeah
1: yeah a philbrook was one of them that was that i know that Mm they're planted in at some time are they is that part of this genetic now that you have all this genetics taking place in studies is is that going to be you know basically looked at more carefully as far as putting those fish in different places and all that i mean is that
3: Yeah, you know, a great question. And and part of this whole strategic trout rollout that, you know, you Mm -hmm. were talking about, Mm -hmm. um, um, I call it the trout renaissance because we're going back and looking at all aspects of what we do with trout management Mm -hmm. and really to boil it down, our mantra that I kind of play out and I talk to at the the public meetings is the right fish at the right time for the right reasons. Um, And that gets to your point from the genetics to the strain that we're going to pick to uh, how many we put in and why we put them in, um, so we're we're reevaluating on a global scale within the state of why we do you know anything with trout.
2: So with with respect to the genetics and the management of the technology, right? There's new stuff that's coming out, um, CRISPR, the gene editing tool where you can actually go in and actually dice and slice DNA strands, and mm-hmm. basically the promise of it is you can basically genetically engineer anything. Um, There could be a time where you actually select different attributes of a a genome for a particular fish and start (laughs) splicing them together. This is real stuff, by the way. (laughs) Not not kidding. Um, Are you guys right now just focused on eugenics types of programs? So you're just breeding... You're just doing breeding. There's no editing going on or anything like that? No, there's no
3: Jurassic Park going on in the department. (laughs) Um, The technology is amazing, right? It's it's incredible what they're finding. And um, uh, our federal partners are, are actually looking to see. They may have typed, you know, some... Uh, diagnostic markers that, that can determine whether or not that fish is predisposed to go out to salt through a, a, a growth um, mm. uh, uh, gene. So there's all kinds of really, I mean, it's just, it's just amazing and it's blown up, but we're not doing anything crazy yet as far as gene splicing. And really, we just want to make sure we're doing the right responsible thing in breeding those fish. And uh, increasing genetic diversity.
2: When That's when you said they're predisposed to go out to salt, you guys figured out a marker that says these this particular trout could become a steelhead. Is that what you're saying? So
3: th- so Carlos Garza and yeah. um, out of the Santa Cruz um, shop, and uh, I'm trying to think it. You know, I'm going to forget people. I'm sure that were involved in that. They've been looking at all these different uh, genes. And they're seeing some connections in, re- in relation to potentially anatomy and these this growth code. So yeah, interesting. So that's pretty cool. Uh, yeah. I think it's still early on, um, but you know it's something seemed to be aligning. So it's just it's just the beginning. You know, it's di- the whole issue with genetics and breeding. It, you know, we like to come on and say, and we were talking about the McLeod. And there's probably historically a lot of mixing that went on with red bands and steelhead in the upper Sacramento Basin. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we like to pigeonhole things a lot of times and go, that's what you're supposed to do. And that's what you're supposed to look like. But um, species in general don't behave that way. They right. mix, they adapt, they in, On
1: And in generalize And if we weren't here, you're saying.
3: Yeah. Yep. There would have been a lot of from the Kern Plateau and those golden trout and the Kern River rainbows. Um, and, and the Upper Sacramento Basin, there's probably a lot of different phenotypes is what we yeah. call them. And so, you know, to, to say this is what is going to be a still or this is what's going to be a golden trout is kind of a trap we try to avoid. Yeah. We want to make sure there's as much what we call the genetic diversity so they can deal with Stochastic events, climate change. Their own,
1: yeah, their own survival. Yeah. yeah. So the mm.
3: more tools, genetic, you know, tools in their toolbox, the better off they're gonna be able to persist. So well that's mm.
1: I was gonna bring that up because we we met with some guys at Fish Bio and they talked about how, you know, a, a rainbow trout can either be a rainbow trout or it can be a steelhead, depending on the variables that are, you know, in, in their and their environment. Warm water. Not a lot of biomass kind of leads to a fish wanting to get out of there and leave and Mm -hmm. go find something, become a steelhead. Um, Where the opposite, if it's cold water, there's tons of food. They don't need to go anywhere. They can stay there and be a trout. So it's with that in mind, and and what you're just saying, you know, you think about the. Fish that were locked into these lakes when the dams were put up.
2: Right. And we had talked about that the McLeod mm-hmm. and like all these places. And they may have been in like mid transit going up to spawn and then they were going to turn around and go back to the ocean. So, at break. Some point. I don't know. Is there a way to
1: break that down into simple <laughs> to simplify what you're, you're talking about as far as because you were, you were, you, and basically what you just said, you, you know, we're tracking these fish, but we're not going to take those genetics and try to put them in other places. Um, we don't want to screw that pool up but we're still going to monitor I guess I, I have a hard time grasping all that, you know? <laughs>
3: yeah, it's it's, it's complex. And, and I think part of it is that, you know, at least for me, I'm, I'm a little apprehensive to play God in relation yeah. to making that call. And that's why, as an example, you look at the Central Valley and those above rim dam fish, you know, yeah. exclusive of us stocking, let's say, we, we never stock those fish. Yeah. There's going to be a portfolio of genetics in those fish that were stuck up there. Some may have been predisposed to go out to the ocean. Some may have been predisposed to be resident. That's their portfolio. So for us to be selective and saying that's the one that we're going to select to take down to Nimbus and grow (laughs) out as steelhead, I get a little bit nervous about that. (laughs) I'd rather err on the side of having their full portfolio and Mm -hmm. let the, the habitat, we talked about the Yuba, those fish don't care what we call them. They just know what life history and phenotype works, right? Yeah. Whoever whoever has the most kids wins at this point. So. Yeah, I like
2: the 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 notion of calling it a portfolio, also because it's a it really you are describing like a low risk kind of a stock play, right? Where you you take many different stocks as opposed to put all your money in one stock.
3: Well, that was a gamble. I didn't know. I know nothing about uh stocks and i just seem like a good word to use for that so <laughs> i don't perfect. know it's okay. a perfect okay. analogy man okay. Well, the yeah.
1: going to the back to the yuba that and the sack the, there was steelhead super abundant you know just in, even 10 years ago and it seems like that drought and i don't know the death of a thousand cuts i always talk about has hurt that what have you noticed on on the yuba in regards to those fish i mean have you seen them disappear you did talk about the trout how they i guess they move a lot up and yeah. down that river talk, yeah talk about that a little bit I yeah guess. i mean they
3: they do what they need to do to survive and they're yeah. going to hedge their bed and they're um they got great plasticity and trying to figure out new things and, and try new things the yuba is a pretty dynamic it's not what it was originally right there yeah. all the tailings and everything and there's high scour and it's hard to be a bug in the mm-hmm. yuba especially in mm-hmm. high flow um, what we found through our evaluations is they're highly migratory, but that doesn't mean they go to the ocean. Right. It means they could go out to the sack. They could go yep. down to the Delta. Yep. Um, we saw them, you know, definitely key in on the salmon and chase the egg drop. Mm-hmm. Um, in in large numbers, I we,
1: see that in other rivers a oh, lot I'm too. I'm sure. I'm all sure. Over, all these tribes on the sack. I mean, yeah. they do. I think they do a lot yeah. of that. Yeah, I
3: mean, it's a free, it's a good lunch. So right. yeah, it's it's worth them to them energetically to go chase that protein mm-hmm. pack, right? And and so uh, that probably at some level happened historically. But, you know, like we are talking, now they can, especially on the lower sack, you know, in, in the redding section, man, they can, they can eat caddis year-round yeah. there. And that's yeah. a different scenario altogether than what historically happened there. So that's a game changer for that. And, and the scales and, and a lot of the information that we evaluate on the UBIS show that. It's mm-hmm. literally out of 800 fish, I think we found five salty fish. Wow. Um, not to say that those fish don't move around sure. and that they're not going to be, you know, 20 or 21 inches and super hot that happens on the Yuba and mm-hmm. a lot of people go, Oh, I got to steal it today. And it doesn't necessarily bear out that that's a salty fish. Hmm.
1: So don't play God. Do, do the studies, figure out the genetics and then work on conservation, work on habitat restoration, do the things that we can do to make it those, the lives of these fish better right? Yeah,
3: you make it sound easy. <laughs> yeah, it sounds super easy. <laughs> yeah, I feel good now. So, um, yeah, it's the water habitat. You know, we talked about that. Mm-hmm. Let fix those things, and you maintain the genetic diversity, and those fish will will find a they'll, way.
1: They'll find. I, I say that all the time. Yeah, they'll find I, a way I was waiting time. for him to say it. This episode, <laughs> like, all right, is he gonna say it? will yeah, it? find a way. He's, he's Jurassic Nature Park finds it's, a way. That's that Jurassic Park quote. Yeah. <laughs> Cool. Well, um, this has all been super good information. Ta- um, an- another thing that gets complicated
2: are regs, right? Fishing yeah. regulations. Yeah. I still can't figure it out. Tell, Talk to us a little First bit about Saturday that. First Saturday preceding Memorial Weekend. <laughs> <laughs> Let me just dictionary proceeding one more time. I think I know what it means. Yeah.
3: It's uh- – so this goes way back. And I remember as a naive, you know, biologist looking at those regs going, oh, we, we could fix this. Right. This is just so complex. It doesn't make sense that from the delineation of some of the reaches that's closed or open and the seasons and the gear. And so, but when you actually sit down and go through the whatever, the 250 plus special regs in the freshwater, um, Wow. There's a history behind every single one. Mm-hmm. There's ownership, local ownership within the community, influencing it, and and um, and and history, right? So, and uh, some of the biologists and the rationale that they came up with some of those regs is completely gone now. And so you're talking about eighty plus years of you know. A dynamic evolution of regs that some people remember and some people have no clue why we have them. So, but they're
2: still all in there. But they're
3: still all in there. It's so a lot of baggage. Th- there is a lot of baggage, <laughs> and it's 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 super complex. So we took it upon ourselves to take on the challenge. Um, we looked for different ways to kind of navigate through that. Um without losing the integrity of, of the reg. I mean, we're we're a super diverse state in regards to habitat and fisheries. Mm-hmm. So I mean, we're not kidding anybody by thinking, oh, we're gonna come up with one reg and that's gonna be it, sure. right? True. Sure. Um so the the main thing we wanna do is not lose the integrity of the management objective to, to protect and manage the fishery, but also look for opportunities, increase opportunities. So our goal now is to kind of come up with a bin of regs that makes sense, you know? And, mm-hmm. and like we were talking, I think earlier, we have 88 different seasons. And we don't need 88 different seasons.
1: <laughs> and you're, when you say that, you're talking about, so last Saturday in April to November 15th. Or
3: or May 31st to October Just, just 15th. time intervals, basically. Yeah, so I, we plotted it out and looked at all these different, you know... Scenarios and combinations, and it was shocking. It was like, oh my gosh, you know, just from the gear restrictions to the size and slot limits to the seasons, and it's it's there's a reason. Like I said, every single one of those somebody came up with a good idea at Mm -hmm, one point, but Mm -hmm. in many cases, we forgot what that good idea was or why we had it, and they didn't necessarily think we should make this the same, uh, you know, as the next county over, and so now we're paying for pass ins in relation to that. Mm Um, And so we're going to be reaching out to anglers in the communities and saying, okay, this is, we're going to start with just coming up with good standard methodology and management approaches. We're going to use this reg to manage for trophy trout, Mm -hmm. right? Uh, We're going to use this one for fast action to allow for people to use bait. Mm -hmm. And we'll build that suite or what we call a menu. And then we'll go across with all our fisheries managers and go, all right, you know uh go ahead and look at your waters right now and select something from the menu and then we'll go back to the public and go this is what we came up with interesting okay um oh. one of the one of the, the other thing is that I like that you're going
1: to the anglers and to give the it, feedback I mean that's that's awesome
3: yeah it's it's something we we haven't done enough of yeah. and one of the things when we did the the stakeholder meetings and we did seven uh, around the state for these different plans in the regs I came up with a, a concept of the questionnaire to get input because um, mm-hmm. I, I do public meetings and we, you know, go to the ISE and we go to sports shows and we talk to guys like you and it's awesome dialogue. But then in the end, we didn't capture it necessarily as far as data or what was important to everybody and the values that that for the for the different things that we talk about. So we created these questionnaires and um, I think we're at thirty five hundred. Questionnaires and wow. normally if you do at least from the people that do this on a regular basis, they said if you get over a hundred you're doing well. So obviously people are interested in this stuff. Yeah. Um I'm super excited. Because we have all this data to go back to and comments to kind of go, okay, are, are we getting close to the mark? Do we know why people hate the regs and why do they hate the regs? Yeah. That way it feeds into our process, and so we're not just telling everybody this is what we're gonna do. Yeah. And do you like it or do you think it sucks? We actually asked everybody in the and so we're gonna do a lot more of that. Is is, is my hope? Yeah, my okay. Go ahead.
2: Um. So once you, you guys kind of codify that and, and get feedback from the community, when are you gonna make it all public?
3: So the timeline is in 2018. We're going to be working on the menu that I referenced. You know, mm-hmm. coming up with the, mm-hmm. those different guilds and strategies for management, and then in 2019, same time about this year, we'll do the roadshow. That'll be when when the department goes out to the different geographic areas and local communities and say, this is what we're thinking about these
2: waters. So the regs are going to be completely changed, wholesale changed in the within say four years.
3: Theoretically, if this all pans out, we'll be looking at um, 2020, March of 2020, that the, fir- the first phase. And that'll be, if this works out, we'll have two basic booklets. One will be what you guys may remember is our supplemental. Yep. That's the one that comes yep, yep, out that's yep. Yep, kind that's of got, dynamic. It's got the
1: Klamath and exactly. the Trinity. and every, yep.
3: Yeah, and the reason why we had that is because of we have to generate those quota numbers after we do our normal big booklet, right? So as part of the strategy, I decided why don't we run to that light and have an anatomist book because that's the, yep. the, the greatest volatility yep. in the change. So Great. we would have an anatomist book and then mm-hmm. the main book. Um, and then hopefully through that process, if you guys – one of the challenges that we face that is the district boundaries – and through this process, we'll probably get rid of that altogether. There will be no district, so you won't have to worry about highway this and county, highway. county line, none lines. of that. None of that. Yeah. So I
2: have a county story. So I was trying to figure <laughs> out if the the middle fork of the feather was mm-hmm. open during between like you know basically off season. Yeah. So winter, yeah. And I called I called our uh, Chad Alexander, who's you know he's a he, he's a a warden in Butte County, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, he's on the show. And he didn't know for sure because that's not his jurisdiction. So yeah. he said he'd call his friend. But I, I'm like going tomorrow, and I didn't know how long it was going to take. So I just got on the cell phone and started calling agency after agency. I talked to four different agencies, got different a- answers. Some said it was closed. Some said it was open. Not until Chad called me back. You know, he got back to me finally. He and his buddy that re- is that's his beat. He said, "Yeah, it's open." I'm like, holy shit! You know, it's it's like, well, I it's mean, just a mess. It it, you know?
3: it is, and that one's. And I'll give you another. That one's gnarly. That, so the middle fork in the lower section is open, and it's actually really killer.
2: In, in Butte County. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
3: yeah. Um, and that, back in the day when I was young and had the time and would hunt those winter waters, um, that was one that was open. The North Fork Yuba is another interesting one in regards to the interpretation of the regs because the county line is the river. Mm-hmm. So one side of the river is one county <laughs> that's open, and the other side is closed. I, don't, I can't remember. If, I, I don't know if we changed that since then, but back in the 90s, wow. I asked that question. And so, you know, obviously common sense, like the warden said, it all depends what side of the river you're well, standing on, standing on. I go, well, Jeez. if I'm waiting and I cast over to the other side and he goes, you're asking too many questions, you know, <laughs> just go conservative and don't fish it. <laughs> So that's, again, (laughs) is the reason why I'm motivated and passionate about fixing this stuff. And those district boundaries are one of the main things people complain about. And so when I looked at consolidation and simplification, I was just get rid of them um, and and really focus on the fisheries that need to be protected with special regs and put them Mm -hmm. in the special reg and call it good. Do you
1: see rivers going to – more rivers going to fly fishing only or anything like that? Do you see that as a potential –
3: um, you know, it's, it's interesting having looked at the data on a lot of waters. One of the things that I've seen as an evolution is, um, in waters where we don't have many fly fishing only. Waters. Right. There's like less than a, less than a half dozen. Yeah. Um, but by default, the constituents, the anglers that go to, you said you're going to go to the pit. So we did an evaluation on the pit, pit three and pit four. And by and large, even though you can use, um, lures, on on some of these special reg waters, the largest constituent base, like over 80% is angla is flying fly anglers. Fishers. Mm, yeah. So they kind of self-segregate and it's kind of a human dimensions issue that's really intriguing to me. <laughs> um so ultimately to me, unless we have a good sound biological and management reason to do a fly only water and I'm a diehard fly angler. Right. I I don't know why we would self regulate uh, and 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 not allow somebody to use lures because in you know in the instance where we do have it they don't really go there anyway it's really right. if there's a special reg that our data when we mm-hmm. evaluated the fly anglers go there and the other traditional anglers the power bait guys or the lure guys go to mm-hmm. harvest based mm-hmm. fisheries
1: and that brings up my point i guess is you know i look at uh, some of these anadromous waters that um will close down during the season that the salmon are coming in, right? They're coming in. We're protecting the salmon. We're going to close this river down. You can't, you can't fish it. Mm -hmm. So, um, and I don't know, you just don't see, in my mind, you don't see the fly fishermen going in there to snag a salmon, right? I do. And I have seen the other, you know, conventional, I'm not knocking them. I love conventional fishing. I, I do both. I love them both. Um, you, it's just easier to get away with some of that stuff and, and do those sort of things. So that's, I guess that's where my mind frame comes from is by making it fly fishing only. You have these people in there that are going to be stewards of the land and and still protecting the water. But you could open that window up a little bit further and still fish it, even when those salmon are around because there's good dry fly fishing, you know, or something like that. I guess that's. That's my mind frame is that we can all become not wardens, but stewards, you know, and to, to help these fisheries. What it, does that make
2: sense at all? Or? It,
3: it's, it's a struggle. Um. <laughs> it, it, seem,
2: it seems to me like you'd have to manage to the lowest, lowest common denominator, meaning you've got to manage to the guy that's, that's going to abuse it, right, and put the regs around that kind of a, a situation.
3: Yeah, you know, and that's where we end up getting yeah. right. So it, you always it's like speeding limits, right? Yeah. You know, so we in and, and that section that we closed for the winter run on in Reading was one of those things, and we had yeah. public meetings about that.
1: Yeah, I think it's great. I think it's a great thing.
3: And and so we had to look at that, and there was guys that wanted to float to the bridge, you know, and wanted to do the sundial, and when the winters were in there, and you know, they were floating sized you know, 20, you know, midges underneath. And so what are the odds of a bycatch issue? And so, you know, we, that's for us to get through. And I, when I get to that point, I I really hope that we have the science to be able to back that up and be able to say, you know, um, we have the data we, we evaluated and we surveyed that fishery and we found that it was a less than 1%, you know, um, encounter rate with the, the fly fishermen versus the, the, the lure folks, right? So you get to that lowest common denominator, and then potentially through special regs, you could have a fly-only. Um, mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. we need the science. We just can't go off of our gut, and You're that's— right.
2: got to get the data uh, to back you it up. you got to get
3: the data from, like, the flossing issue or a bead issue. Talk or about You guys were saying, about yeah,
2: that. what's uh, what's flossing? I have no idea. Talk about that a little bit. <laughs> um, I said that a couple times
3: before. So, and I've seen it since— I mean, this goes back to the 80s, Um, and especially when you have uh, congregations of spawning salmon, especially, Mm -hmm. and sometimes even steelhead, uh, there was a technique that was pretty well developed and mastered in the Central Valley Rivers that they would use very long leaders and neutrally buoyant beads on a on a curved like well, it came uh, from
1: Alaska probably originally is they, where it came from yeah and, and that's, uh, they still do it to this day they, yeah they still do it up there
3: and it's just a really effective technique because you can use a greater than 15 foot or greater than 10 foot long leader and that thing just floats through and then slides it's through the open gape Flossing. of a salmon's mouth. Uh, and then once okay. you get resistance, you can set that hook and ping that fish on the outside, usually with the hook. Um, Got it. And you need the congregation of those fish to show up. You need the right habitat and velocity to make it effective. We've had it on the Central Valley, Feather American, um, the Klamath. You know, Those were significant issues um, for our enforcement folks to deal with. And folks that legitimately wanted to, you know, get those fish to strike volitionally with a lure. Um, but again, it was just talk, right? We all like, well, we hate this. You know, this is not potentially illegitimate. This is, you know, the anglers talking. Um, and so we had multiple meetings with a snagging committee with the Central Valley anglers, um, the guides, uh, the NGOs, the, those organizations. And they threw it back on me and say, come up with a study to, to deal with this. Oh, geez. So, I came up with a plan during uh, on the American during the close season to to get volunteer anglers to go out and evaluate varying leader lengths using that technique, and see if we reduced leader length, um, we would see a reduction in the foul hooking. Wow! Thinking that you know whatever the outcome of that study, it's going to you know provide us some information to make a reg change if necessary. And interestingly enough there was no change in the amount of foul hooking that occurred from any of the leader links um, because they were all high. So, you know, uh, over 80% across the board. But what we did see is that when you started from a short leader length and you went out, your, your capture efficiency went up. Sure. And so that was enough for us to be able to go, well, there's not much we can do. We're not going to penalize the bluegill fisherman with a three you know three foot long leader. I looked at all these different angling techniques from trolling to the fly angling guides, For bobbers and weights yeah, and, all of that. Know. And the last thing we wanted to do was penalize you know a, a legitimate angling technique. Um, so and looking at the data, we felt really, really uh, good about the fact that we wouldn't impact if we use six feet. Um and the fly guys were exempted through this with the integrated sync tips and all that other stuff. It has to do with the. I saw that. Yeah. Yeah. So if you look at and you read the actual right,
1: it reads a little. But you're right.
3: It's squirrely, but I had yeah. to write it that way so sure. I didn't ding you know the steelhead guys I didn't ding the guys on the sack that are trolling for stripers yep. so if you read where the hook is versus where the weight is and how we define weight mm-hmm. really and a lot of the fly guys they were super concerned and then I yeah. walk them through the rig and they are like, okay this yeah. is this is okay yeah. but we had to get that science to be able to go to the commission
2: you know, and I'm really glad we covered this because there's been I've heard people just having you know conversations that oh that long leaders are completely out. And you know, as a fly uh, person, oh yeah, oh yeah. Uh, yeah, I get those calls. So, yeah. okay, cool. should we bring it up and read it? Um, the reg, yeah, verbatim. Um, like Google it. Yeah. Okay, give me a second. <laughs> yeah, because I didn't memorize <laughs> don't, it. do so on the main screen yet. All right. <laughs> uh,
3: so,
1: and then you also did a study with beads. Yeah. Right.
3: Yeah, that was another Just one.
1: Google California regulation six foot leader. And then uh, we're getting there, guys. <laughs> there you go.
3: 2018, <laughs> 19 freshwater sport fishing. Right yeah. here. Yep. Okay, I
2: think who's it, the model?
3: Uh, she was on our wild trout crew last <laughs> year. <laughs> Giggity, <laughs>
2: all right. Leader length restriction, yeah. This one,
3: yeah. So that's kind of an overview, um, along with the Nimbus closure. That
2: so I should see section 2.05. If you want the
3: verbatim, yeah. Okay,
2: Nick wants the verbatim, so I, we're yeah, gonna okay. Yeah. Let's section 2.05. Might as well read it. We were talking about it five, not six. Zero 05, actually. Oh, that's why I can't find it. There it is. All right.
3: Yeah, that only one. When we're trying to do the regs, it's amazingly mm-hmm. difficult to make sure you don't impact something else when you're trying to it. Well, craft why don't you guys things. keep
2: talking so our listener doesn't fall asleep and then I'll, <laughs> so uh, I'll it, find this?
3: You mentioned about the
1: bead study. Um, uh, explain a little bit about so that.
3: So we were getting some, um, some, Conflicting information and concern from anglers in relation to the effect of uh, beads on uh, on primarily anatomous waters. So the Yuba, the Trinity, some of those areas that beads are heavily used, and some folks were confused on whether or not it was legal, not legal, and you know some people were giving information about well, as long as you do it within two inches, then it's all good, which is. Kind of similar to, I think, the Bristol Bay um, reg, which is the only reg out there really— That um, involves beads. That involves beads. Yeah. The, the the New York and the Great Lakes, I think they may have some new stuff. But again, I was hearing all this stuff, and I was like, uh, we need to get some science behind this. Um, so I reached out to Alaska and everybody else, talked to some um, biologists that had published, Julie Mecca out of Arizona, who worked in— uh, uh, I think it was Moraine Creek up Mm -hmm. in in Alaska, and she'd done some work. I'm like asking, but nobody had really got to the science about, you know, those different distances, you know, from zero to Mm -hmm. two to four to six.
2: And I was busy looking at the leader length stuff, which I found, but I want to just – so I'm coming in halfway through the conversation. You guys are talking about pegging beads, correct? Yeah, correct. And the the distance between the hook and where the actual bead is Yeah, so for the folks that don't know what the heck we're talking about, um, somebody described pegging beads.
1: No, it's again. Really it's quick. just
2: it's taking a bead and pegging
1: it with some something, either wrapping your line through it a couple times or using a toothpick of some sort, but mm-hmm. pegging it above a bear hook. Well, it could be a fly or whatever, but above and a bear a bear hook. The reason it works is no, it's just a, It looks like an egg. It, it floats down and looks like a natural egg. That's the, and, and with a yeah. bead, you can you can use a pretty good
2: imitation of what a natural salmon egg looks like. Yeah. So it's a very effective way to catch fish. And the thing that was kind of like counterintuitive to me when I first saw this rig and I was with Nick um because the bead is like very far away from the hook, I'm like how the heck does that even snag a fish? How, how does that hook a fish? And basically it they just suck the bead in. The hook follows behind them. You set, and the bead comes out of its mouth, but the hook stays in. Yeah, you're throwing me under right. the bus a little bit. It wasn't that far from the. <laughs> hook. Yeah, in we fact, were. I make it sure that it's super close. It was then, about six inches. And right? I, and yeah, I, okay.
1: I think the uh, size of the hook is another thing that's important too. And yeah. especially like the smaller the fish, you, you know, you shouldn't be using something like a. Four size four hook. So those treble hooks that you were pegging. <laughs> Get were out of here! <laughs> <laughs> but you know, when you go to you go to some larger species. You can you know it, it makes and it, I've especially big steelhead. I've never, I, rarely ever, maybe a half a percent of the time see a hook on the outside of the fish. Right? If you do it right, you should always be in the corner of the mouth or you know inside the mouth. But yeah, it's still it's but a lot of
2: people it, don't know that. So it's a it's a tough. And you brought up that point about the distance when we saw, I think, two two or three fish with gill plates torn off one side of their yeah. their head, you know, completely torn off. Yeah,
1: and, you know, using oversized yeah. hook or having a big separation between the beads. So anyway,
2: it. I, I kind of got us off on a bunny hole, but I wanted to make sure <laughs> that other folks that knew, who no, didn't no, know that, what beads, beads were all about. No, that's
3: a great yeah. point. And this conversation is what we had, you know, for <laughs> – over 15 years and that's why i was like we got to get some science behind Mm -hmm. addressing all the things you guys Mm -hmm. are talking about because um a lot of time in in the moment when you're unhooking that fish you don't necessarily think about where those hooks are getting inserted right yeah and one of the other things that we saw in a lot of our fisheries was the maxillary process which is that some people call it the mandible Mm -hmm. um were torn the yuba was where it first came to light to me Mm because we were doing our study and during the egg drop, um, and it's not always torn off, but the membrane is ripped, yeah. and then so it sloughs off. Is
2: that in the the roof of the mouth, top of the On mouth, the side. Side? Outside, yeah, Out, outside? So we're talking outside, yeah, the maxilla. Okay. Okay. So
3: one of the one of the artifacts of that issue was the interpretation of our regs in regards to a snagged fish, which was in the mouth. Historically, that definition was in the mouth. So again, we get back to the regs, right? Somebody, it was a good idea at one point, but how do you define in the mouth? So during those years when we had the snagging subcommittee meetings, I brought forth, I'm like, why don't we just say inside the mouth? And then we actually can act define where that hook point insertion is. Because in the mouth, when you're in – you know, an area where there's high levels of snagging and flossing occurring, and that hook is on the outside um, when they're flossing those salmon, uh, that's a legit fish, you know, or at least it's going to be hard to defend in a court of law against a judge saying, right. well, define in the mouth what's that mean.
2: Right. I know that was Bill Clinton's defense, and it didn't work too <laughs> yeah, <geez>. well. <laughs> <laughs> I was waiting. I, I had that joke like primed for like ten seconds, waiting for the right moment. <laughs> yeah. But anyway, yeah.
3: So so we changed changed the language and now it's inside the mouth. We did that, I don't know what year it was. And that helped to kind of refine how we were gonna look at and design the study to get at this foul hooking issue with with the flossing. But it also fits into the bead. And so I don't know if you want me to give you the like low down on what we did with that study, or you want yeah. to talk about the, uh, we can go back to the leader. We'll like yeah.
1: We'll tell, tell us
2: about yeah, this, let's the study. Up.
3: Okay. Yeah. We can. Um, so same thing conversations over the years, is it two inches distance? Um, uh, what is the injury rate, uh, size of hook, So to standardize that, I went out and talked to everybody who, you know, guides on the Trinity or the Yuba. And and we got the hook point, you know, the hook size dialed in, the Gamagatsu, you know, basically a circle hook. And then I stratified out from zero to two to four to six to eight um, inches, inches. Mm -hmm. And then caught a lot of fish with, I think, 50 different anglers. And we would rotate those distances during the egg drop. Um, and evaluate hook point insertion, where that actual hook point went in, uh, injury rate, you know, was it deep hooked, was it on the maxillary in the process, and, and then um, took that data and then the size of the fish hmm. and then evaluated uh, the gape width and ran that number. And then I took it one step further and actually designed a fly, which I called the tether which actually took the bead on the backside off of monofilament off a hook. So now we just didn't have zero. We had a negative one or negative one and a half.
2: I think I've seen stuff like that where they heat the, the hook up and sink the plastic bead into that the That was shank. what we did for
3: the zero. So that okay. was zero was a, a melted bead. Mm-hmm. And then I actually tethered with some mono and adhered a bead to the backside of the hook. So the, the hook was in front of the bead okay. to the leader.
1: Oh, interesting. That was negative.
3: That was negative. Gotcha. Um, and then we took um, another really compelling thing was we took underwater video and evaluated because we saw some dramatic changes in the catch per unit effort across those different systems, especially when we went to the, the melted bead. I mean, we just didn't hardly catch any fish and we knew the fish were there. So we're like, all right, so we got, you know, the, one of these AquaView cameras that looks like a blue bluegill. And we called them creepy Nemo. We stuck creepy <laughs> Nemo out behind the Reds and watched how those fish reacted to those different systems. Whoa! And vastly different reaction with the neutrally buoyant, non-melted bead. That thing acts differently in the sure. water. And but more importantly, when they come up to it, uh, with even when they commit on a melted bead, they come up, and when they get within two inches, they turn around and, 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 and divert, whereas that there's no hook in it, even though there's a leader going through because it's a wrap system, uh, they would suck it down. So there's probably a little of both as being able to see the hook you know, melted on it and then the actual flotation and action of a non-buoyant. Mm. When I, that's why I did the tether system. So when we did the tether system, we alleviated the hooks st- stuck to the bead um, and it changed, and the CPUE went back up. Hmm. Um, so we did. We had pretty good results. How with long did de- you do
1: this for? How many years? Or...
2: Probably mm-hmm. five. Wow. We
3: caught probably over two thousand fish. Wow. Landon, are,
2: are, are there? Are that? Is that study posted online somewhere too? No. No. Okay. No.
3: I. It, it's one of. The, I. I probably have like six or seven manuscripts that I got. But I don't have the time anymore. Um. The one that the barbless fly one I got published, but all the rest are the data's already been crunched and everything. I just got to yeah. write it up. Mm-hmm.
2: Okay. I'd be. There'd be a lot of people interested. No, in that. I know, I know. We've, <laughs> and we've I'm going had... to ask you some stuff off, off air. <laughs> <laughs> um,
3: so, yeah, it was really interesting. What we found was that uh, for the zero to two, uh, we saw the lowest amount of foul hooking, and the foul hooking was a uh, hook point insertion. Outside of the, inside of the mouth, right? It's on the outside. Mm -hmm. Um, The maxillary process that we talked about, which for the average angler, if they hook them right there in that slit... It looks like it's in the mouth. I mean, most people that came out and volunteered with us, they're like, oh, it's in the mouth. I'm like, let's get it in the net. Let's look. I'm like, no, see where the hook point came in? Yeah, yeah. When you look at the, and you understand the physics of how that system works, it's going to go like a grappling hook to the first hard structure edge that it gets to, and that maxillary is the first spot. Right. Then it slides in and hooks right at the juncture of the V, just like for flossing. Right. So... It's in the mouth, right? And so, historically, it would have been fine under our regs. But I was more interested in the injury rate, the sloughing mm-hmm. of the maxillary, and what what was the mechanics of that whole system. Um, and again, we could see it, you know, in the video, too. It was kind of compelling when you see how they reacted and how that hook stuck them right in the side. We got mm-hmm. some underwater video that was pretty cool. So, the, you know, again, it was... I think for the two inch, we were at about a forty percent foul hooking occurrence, and then it just went up from there. You know, out at eight inches, you're almost exclusively foul hooking in fish. In the eyeball, or
2: yeah. You know,
3: and the other thing that was kind of cool with the underwater videos, you guys know this. I mean, these fish center pin their their quarry and they suck stuff in. Yeah. So they
1: actually will put their eye right right up to the the bait or whatever it is, and then turn their head, suck in, and then go back. Right. right. That's kind of.
3: So, that, so one of the things that I thought about, and so we, we started getting the metrics on, is the gape of, of the fish. So if you think about it as a hole and you measure the difference all the way across an 8-pound steelhead, you barely can get to 2 inches. It's usually about just over 2 inches. So when the bead goes in the middle, because that's where it gets sucked in, now you're talking about an inch distance. And then you add the additional length from the eye to the hook point, and you're already out outside the mouth. So sometimes, you know, what we saw saw on the video is that they'll suck that hook in first when they do that vacuum. When you do that, then you're going to get it in the inside of the mouth. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But most of the time when people fish beads, and I'm sure you guys know this, Nick, it's usually kind of on a swing. It's not always on a perfect dead drift. So that hook is usually dragging on Mm a lateral position, Mm -hmm. which is already setting up. If it's a perfect dead drift, a lot of times it'll probably get sucked in first before the the bead does. Gotcha. Um, but it was it was a cool study. It was really interesting to yeah. see the data and very cool. Um, more so on the reaction of the fish when we did the zero point, and they just wouldn't go after it. And as soon as we switched over, it was lights out. There, there's the probably page. at
2: least a few people that use a zero point rig that are going right now, listening, going, <laughs> "Damn."
3: Oh, I <laughs> I I did it for years just because I, you know it that, just logically seems it like made it sense. Would have, yeah, yeah, and uh, there. Um, Dave Schaefer that used to, he used to guide on the, on the Yuba I showed him my box and he was just like, and there was probably 200 melted beads, all different <laughs> colors, you no know, nail polish system. And he looked at that and he goes, man, that's a lot of melting, dude. You really did all that. <laughs> but he was, you know, we, again, we were in the, like, this is the best way to do it. And, uh, with the melted bead, the other, the other criticism on those things and glow bugs is they deep hook. And, um, mm. uh. You know, again, in our experience, and our data... Deep
1: hook, meaning they'll go into the gills exactly. and, and hook a gill or, or, or the esophagus. Down throat. Yeah.
3: yeah. And yeah. so, that was a big deal. I think primarily in Alaska, Julie found some of that because I think they're having people that aren't very experienced. Mm-hmm. Um, we also looked at that. We looked at angler experience, too, uh, in, in the analysis. Um, I think if you have inexperienced anglers that can't watch a bobber, um, those fish voraciously attack those beads. And so, if you're not paying attention and you had a melted bead it could it could get deep hooked, but most of the time if you're watching that bobber, it's so voracious and you set the hook in time, it's it's not an issue. But Mm.
1: how did Barb and Barbless come into play?
3: As far as the bead one or just in general. So um again it was one of those I I I had seen the reg for years and always wondered, you know, am I losing fish because of a barbless reg? And do I land less fish because of a barbless rag? And do we really need it? And then it was the little truckie that hit it home when I heard one of our anglers come to me. And he goes, I just got pinched for 1200 bucks for a barbless violation on the little truckie for a you know size 18 betas. <laughs> He's all, explained to me what the biological rationale for having a barbless, you know, for that particular fishery with that size hook. Is it really... And I was like, okay, sounds like a cool study. Let's do it. So, again, um, we we looked at uh, the effect of that, and, and we called it the capture efficiency, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and, ag- again, it was negligible, really. Um, and so it really kind of questions the efficacy of having a barbless reg. Obviously, if you hook it in, you know, yourself in the arm or your pet safety, or your kid, right? There's the safety issue and no one's going to argue that. Yeah. Um, yeah. there's a, we looked at the handling time. We looked at injury rates. Um, one of the more interesting, you know, as a side note, I was looking at some of our really good sticks that were in our study. And they actually had an increase in uh, capture Land, efficiency ratio uh, with barbless. Yep, I think they just got a better, better hook. You get her hook set and faster yep. and more efficient. Mm. Um, so, but that that we didn't have enough. And I, I categorized the anglers I had to do in three categories, and those guys were like ultra ultra anglers, and they mm-hmm. didn't they didn't have a category. But I was yeah. watching, going, those guys are like tilting it the other direction. Yeah, that
2: that one you almost have to have a control group that from a proficiency standpoint right yeah, because there's yeah you put a barbless hook in two fish and the anglers are this you know the disparity in skill set is is high the guy that obviously knows how to fight that fish turn that fish is going to yeah, have exactly. a higher capture rate no right?
1: it makes sense if you're Contact with that fish, you know, if an advanced angler will be 100% of the time, that, that hook is going to go in further to that fish's mouth without a barb, mm-hmm. right? I mean, if and if the barb's there, that's just something that's going to get in the way of that penetration potentially. Yeah, it's right?
3: it's physics at that point. And then if, if they're experienced, like you were saying, Chad – once you actually put tension, it's actually pretty difficult to get that hook unbuttoned unless you make a mistake and mm-hmm. get slack line and where that's where the and novice comes. in. I think,
2: you know, having – we've talked – Nick and I have talked about this a lot. We were like the, the whole state should just be barbless, but I don't know how controversial that would be. But um, I don't know. I don't really see a need. What do you think about that? So
3: so just to make sure you, got, you guys know the results of the study is that it, it was overwhelmingly significant that the barbed fish – Barbed hooks caught more fish, landed more fish, right. and that's like you know my my buddies. Oh, you did a study on the firm grasp of the obvious bloom, and I'm like, yeah, but we didn't have that data. So, one of the things to consider uh, is if you have a fishery that is harvest based, you got a five ten, you know, five daily ten fish, and you want people to harvest that, you don't necessarily want a yeah, barbless. That's, that's mm-hmm. a great because part. our we yeah. want that harvest to to change the biomass or shift and and sure. and, and allow right. for those. Those people that want to harvest fish, which is our our customer too. But if you've got a listed fish, right? Let's say you've got an anadromous fishery, Mm -hmm. you know, listed Mm -hmm. steelhead or a cutthroat or something like that. You want to optimize your chance of survival. Um, so in that case, you know, my recommendation would be you got to go barbless. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then, you know, volitionally, if it's a safety issue, I, I just pinch because I don't want to have to worry about it. My mm-hmm. buddy just had yeah.
1: to go to the hospital for a shad fly that was stuck in his left love handle, <laughs> right? <You Gotcha>. <laughs> and if, if I was there, I was going to show him the line technique, you know, oh, yeah, to yeah. pop it out, which is oh. very effective. You, yeah. you know, you put a piece of thick line in the gape of the hook, push down. On the hook, um, basically pushing the the you would think you'd be pushing the hook deeper into the meat, right? But you'd make that push and then pull, they just pop right out along know, with your kidney, yeah, <laughs> his kidney. <and laughs> but um, them. yeah, he he had to go to the hospital to get that thing out. You know, they they tried to cut the hook, and then it was just surgery at that point. Oof. You know, yeah. but I, I love the idea of having more fisheries. Be marvelous Because of what you just said, safety being one, but, you know, the protection, of these, protection of these fisheries that are, are pretty f- fragile in, in the last, you know, 10 years of drought that we just experienced, you know, that's, that's just my thing.
3: Yeah. And, and, and that's the kind of information that we want from the questionnaires, you know, to right. get, get that insight on, right. um, you know, cause not everybody wants to that same you know experience Mm -hmm. necessarily they just want to harvest fish and to me there's different fisheries for different folks um and so that's just another tool in our toolbox enforcement of it's a little squirrely right you know where do you draw the line the cotton ball the shirt um, yeah exactly you know um so uh, these are all the things that we're struggling with and we'll be you know reaching out for for input on do you oh sorry go ahead
2: Uh, it doesn't so basically in, in terms of regs being changed or whatever it's still it's kind of not you guys aren't really there to kind of you're not quite ready yet to voice how that's going to go down well that's what
1: i was going to say too is the penalties and fines involved with some of these things like are they going to increase or change i mean is that a uh
3: I mean that, no, no. That's not part of the simplification. Right. And, and at some point, when that issue I, I, I brought up on the little truckie, I was at a fly club meeting because our director was there and I was an embedded person just in case he got stuck on, on a question. And, and the issue came up about this $1,200 fine. And I was like, I can't believe that's a, why is the LT a twelve hundred dollar fine? Well, yeah. we have a base fee that goes into any of these uh, code violations. Mm-hmm. On top of that, the local county fishing game commission can add on. Mm-hmm. So to me, you know, from a biological standpoint, and and from an enforcement standpoint, that's like three times the the amount of a red red light violation. Right. So, but we as a department don't necessarily control that. So I think it's another thing to consider through this process and work with the county fish and game commissions that we don't abuse that, yeah. you know, and, and let them know that, you know, in the grand scheme of things, biologically at the population level, a violation like that is probably, you know, that doesn't fit the crime. Um, but, you know, that's that's not for us. We set our, our codes straight. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, for most of those in, in, uh, infractions or misdemeanors, that are probably like a hundred bucks or 75 yeah. bucks. Yep
1: um i look at like the spring run salmon you know that are potentially could go extinct right or just not be uh, and have in some rivers and you know we have kids and and anglers of all ages going down there and snagging these salmon you know because they're there they can see them they're in a small creek that you know it's very easy to see them so they go down there and snag a fish and whatever you know but i would just think that's and that's what i've talked to chat about is just the if the fine was a little bit more aggressive in a situation like that for an anadromous fish that again that we're looking at as potential extinction um i don't know that's just a something we've talked about that's a right?
3: that's a great point and yeah. you know and I'm sure enfor- a lot of enforcement folks if they listen to this will be nodding their head yes but right. again you know you think in the grand scheme of things when these go to court and they go in front of the DA mm-hmm. um, you've got to have a really good judge that understands what you just explained right and right. so you, you put into perspective you've got somebody that just created grand theft and they just came in front of somebody who snagged a fish I don't <laughs> get it why am I going to charge them $10,000 you know as a fine right. you know so right they struggle with that with the abalone issue if you've well, got a really good judge and da you can make those kind of my, cases yeah kind of like
2: my thought on that though is i would craft the the reg not not to win in court because if it's gotten that far it's you're already in kind of like a you know if you look at it a bell curve of litigation you're already on the tail and so i'm talking about the middle you know, most of the people that that will just pay the fine but not have to go to court and fight it. I think that's what you need to build the regulation around. Not so much the the fringe, the fringe ones because they're going to be so few and far between that it's not going to really matter in terms of either driving revenue for the fishery or whatever it is. But you know, manage to that that bell bell curve of people that are least likely to to litigate. You know what I mean?
1: Well, that impor- makes sense. It's important, you know. Obviously, you want people buying licenses and getting out and going fishing and, and paying for all this stuff, right? So you got to make it, you know, yeah. attract, attracting.
2: Well, do you guys want to talk about the the leader length reg? It section two point zero five leader length regulate restriction. It should be unlawful to use
1: any configuration of fishing tackle in anadromous waters unless the distance between the terminal hook or terminal lure. And any weight attached to the line or leader, whether fixed or sliding, is less than six feet. For purpose of this section, weight includes any product used to submerge the line or leader, including non-buoyant artificial flies or artificial lures, but does not include integrated or sinking fly fishing lines, lead core lines used while trolling from a boat, dropper weights used while trolling from a boat, or clipped weights used with downrigger
2: systems. Okay, so… First question. You wrote that, right? Yeah. Okay, so we've got the guy that, <laughs> that wrote this section. You guys, yeah. so pay close attention. Listeners here. can't see the sweat, but go ahead. <laughs> okay, so I've got I so say Euro nymphing rig. Say eighteen foot leader, typically with a usually guys fish a point fly, which would be in per these this rig. Um, the weighted where where is it, Nick? The weighted uh, artif okay, including non buoyant artificial flies or artificial lures. So, a non buoyant artificial fly, I could interpret if I read that as a point fly on a on a Euro rig, right? So, basically, my meat and potatoes fly, stone fly, with you know x amount of wraps of lead, that falls under what you are saying, right? Yep. Okay, includes any product. So, is my Euro rig going to be, or is it illegal?
3: So under the, and this is where it would be nice to have the graphics, which we Mm -hmm. brought to the commission, right? So I had to do a little diagram of what this looks Mm -hmm. like, but for a a Euro nymph system, you take your bottom fly, which Mm -hmm. is your terminal fly, Mm -hmm. which is your weight, and then you would measure the longest distance up your, your leader. So in most cases, and I, and I talked to a bunch of people, including the fly shop owners, When people are using a Euro rig or even an indicator rig, Mm -hmm. how often do you run into a situation where the bottom fly is six feet away from your top weight? Never. Never. It's really rare. So if you're using a Euro rig, usually you're going to, even if you're running three flies, you're not going to be six feet from your bottom fly to your top. No. Wait.
2: Okay. I think I understand. If
3: I had crowns and a cocktail napkin, I could show you. I can I can give you
2: cocktails and a whiteboard. Only
3: <laughs> would well, we never leave. But <laughs> so okay. the,
1: there has been you know sliding weights used, and I, I guess at some point in time, while that thing is drifting, it does. But it always ends up coming close, to, you know, right, right, to the hook. It right. slides to always to the hook. But I, I, the way it reads, it makes sense.
3: It, it's tough to write something like this that that gets it to the intent of what we're trying to sure. do—to restrict the long leaders sure. and not hit somebody who's trolling with lead core, who's yep. using a drop weight to troll for stripers, a mm-hmm. kid fishing for bluegill. I mean, it just. But it, for the fly and one of the I think one of the biggest hindrances in understanding this is that we have leader in the definition. Right. And really it's not a leader restriction as much as a distance between weight to weight the in the
1: terminal hook. That's yeah. the key thing. Yeah.
2: So if it's if it's less than six feet, you're fine. You're good. Sorry. Yep. That's the key thing. So okay, got it.
1: It is you know, there's still gonna be guys out there in the outlet throwing these
2: snagging rigs.
1: Yep. Is there is there ever going to be a situation or like are the times going to change a little bit on that? But I think I you know it's funny I bring this up I just listen to myself talk. Um, people need those fish need to be harvested I guess. You know when you say I,
3: outlet you're talking thermal the feather. Yeah. The feather yeah yeah. yeah. Um, you know, there's, it all depends what, you know, your perspective on harvest, right? Right. And those hatchery fish, they're, they're there for a reason at some level. And I won't even go down that road, but you know, there's going to be a transition from the Nimbus Basin closure to this, with this reg and and there's going to be a learning period and people are going to have to, and in reality, they're probably going to find a way to game this system. If you have a congregation of salmon, big salmon in three or four feet of water, this isn't gonna stop the problem. <laughs> right. And then, you know, and I, and I I talked to JD Ritchie and all the uh-huh. guys on the subcommittee. I'm like, let's mm-hmm. not kid ourselves. We're not gonna find a silver bullet through regs and science. Right. But we can maybe mitigate mm-hmm. and create a speed bump for this. Mm-hmm. Um, just help educate people a exactly. little bit more. Yeah, so mm-hmm. so uh, it's not perfect, and, and the regs are really difficult. To uh, my gauge on that is let's not penalize people unnecessarily, but yeah. try to find something that's going to make a difference. I'm
1: really looking forward to that. I'm I'm stoked that you guys are are doing that. I think it's going to be awesome. Um, just to simplify it and make it you know easier to read and look at it. It's 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 great, and I love that you're bringing the anglers in and talking to guides like that to to get the information. It's perfect. I yeah, it's no great. thanks.
3: I'm I'm excited and a little scared. So. <laughs> yeah.
1: What else? Uh, what else do you have for us, Roger? Oh, that was a lot of information. So. Yeah,
3: yeah. Um, you know, there's a lot of things going on. You know, uh, and, and the,
1: any future projects you're excited excited about? Or I'm trying talk to about?
3: I'm trying to stay focused on the the trout renaissance stuff. Um, yeah. I have a few things I like to do before I retire in this department. Mm-hmm. Fixing and improving the regs is one. Mm-hmm. Creating more opportunities for anglers. I mean, that's I, I want to look back on my career and go, you know, that, that made the difference. The That's challenge, awesome. the challenge was one of those things, I, you know, yeah. you know, with Ryan and all these other folks that knew nothing about necessarily native trout. So looking out, um, there's some other legacy, you know, hopes that I have about mm-hmm. saving and recovering some of our listed trout species and other, um, species, Mm-hmm. Uh, getting sack perch is another, uh, you know, and a lot of people don't know that's our kind of native sunfish. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah. we'd like to expand those angling opportunities to catch, uh, uh sack perch. They're in Crowley. Uh, a lot of people fish from in Crowley. They're in Pyramid yeah. too. They're in Almanor. They're um, good to eat, right? Yeah, they're super tasty. Uh, Great fish the, tacos. That's the problem. That's can why you, they're not around. <laughs> can, you get, can you get them like a, like you
2: fish for bass or is it a completely different thing?
3: You can get them. Uh, they're they're not huge, but you could get them the same way you fish for bass, maybe with little jigs or something. But a lot of the folks just get them intermittently, um, either through jigs if they target them or when they're fishing at Crowley or Almanor for trout and that's they pick good. them up. The
1: striper love them. Oh, yeah. And the certain demographic loves them. To as, they're to they're tasty, well.
3: which doesn't help, you know, our recovery efforts, but, you know, we're looking for uh, more angling opportunity, smart angling opportunity, recovery of native fish. Um, it's all awesome. Yeah, that's um, protecting, you know, trying to keep the aquatic invasives out. Mm-hmm. That's another ongoing struggle that we face all over the place. If it's not, I don't know if you guys heard about the nutria, you know, the big rat. um, Yeah. It's quagga mussels, New Zealand mud snails. um, So we're constantly battling and trying to, you know, inform anglers what not to do. So,
1: Well, Chad and I, you know, we're we're trying to get a lot of resources together here locally in in Chico and around the North State. And I know there's a lot of other anglers doing the same thing. And so, I mean, let us know whatever you guys need as far as conservation efforts, habitat restoration, like – Shoot us some ideas and for projects and things that you want to see or have or if done. You guys, and, you know, want, and
2: want to get the word out on something, and and we'll. You know, I appreciate you know, that. We yeah. we want
1: to be a part of that. We want to help and do do what we can. I told Chad I spent a lot, most of my life catching these fish. I want to make sure that my. My kids get to see those fish and catch them as well. Well, so. the one thing I think
2: next takeaway from Harry is he's going to start to pinch all of his treble hooks going forward.
3: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it saves doctor bills out. Yeah. Nothing else, yeah. And and pet threats. I I, I tie a lot of flies and I, mm-hmm. I do it at the bench. And... Uh, oh yeah, it's for my dogs right. more than anything else. <laughs> right. I mean, I probably should be thinking about myself and my kids, yeah. but my dogs, I worry because I got so many bugs dropping sure. in the carpet that uh, I'm like, I got to pinch these things. <laughs> I don't want to go to the vet.
2: So yeah, yeah, my my dog likes you. He's been at your feet the entire time. I know. Time.
3: I know. Nice dog.
1: Well, um, don't, uh, come up and and do some fishing with us. You want to throw for some stripers or do some st- chase some steelhead or something like that when you find the time and all your madness and. Yeah all the great things you're doing uh for the state we really we appreciate it and come, yeah, come up and let's do some fishing.
3: Oh, thanks. Enjoy being here and talking with you guys.
2: Awesome. Cool. So the uh, website everybody uh is the wildlife.ca.gov California Department of Fish and Wildlife. This was Roger
1: Bloom. Yeah, come back and tell us about all this, you know, after we get you get it yeah. implemented. We want to hear more. So yeah.
2: 2020.
3: <laughs> I hope to see you guys before then at the, at no, the town sure. halls. Yeah.
1: There you go. Awesome. Thanks, Roger. All right. Thanks, guys. Key music.
0: This podcast would not be possible without support from our sponsors, FishBio and Bill. FishBio is a consulting firm that offers a fresh approach to fishery science. They specialize in fish research, monitoring, and conservation with innovative uses of technology and communication. From their offices in Chico, Oakdale, and Santa Cruz, California, to Vientiane, Laos, FishBio is committed to solving natural resource challenges locally and globally. Learn more at www.fishbio.com and Amp.Build. Amp is a software design and engineering shop located in Chico, California. Amp creates beautiful apps for mobile and desktop devices, wearables, and the Internet of Things. Amp develops native, web, and hybrid apps on a variety of platforms. Chad, who co-hosts this podcast, is the agency's founder. Learn more at www.amp.bill.